And at the point of death, Peter would have said, this is horrible. This is the worst thing that has happened in my life. But that had to happen so that Peter could see the best thing that happened in his life. The early church gathered together for worship and prayer. And the early church expanded. Join Pastor Hook as we learn lessons from the book of Acts as God grows his church. We are in our study of the book of Acts. And we left off on our last episode in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. And basically, where we are in Acts is that Peter has stood up, and because the Holy Spirit has descended upon the early church, they've started to do things that are unusual. They've started to speak in tongues. And they've started to dance and sing and prophesy and all the things from this prophecy in Joel. The people come out and say, obviously, your early church, they're drinking wine because they look like they're crazy. And Peter says, no, we're not drinking wine. It's too early in the morning for that. And then he explains that this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And I want you to um, think about the what we... We always think of the church as being a place that's very stoic, um, emotionless, uh, a church that is um, serious-minded. I I think oftentimes when we think of church, we think of Pharisees and Sadducees and these really, really intelligent, God-led people who study scriptures and then they make serious decisions about scripture. And I do believe that it is worth noting that in the early church, as soon as the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon them, that they act as if they're drunk. That does not seem to me as if it's stoic people who are um, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I, uh, I always think that, that the church, from the Reformation on, we have this idea of what church is, and but then something is lacking from the church. And so uh, from the Reformation on, somebody will say, this is what's lacking from the church, and he'll start his own denomination, and it'll be all into that. And one of the denominations that came out of the late 1800s is, are the Pentecostal denominations, where people uh, are very, very emotional in church. And why would this come about? It comes about because Prior to this, people weren't as emotional in church. They were very, um, uh, how do I say this? They, they didn't necessarily wear their emotions on their sleeve. Now, I don't think that's wrong. Either one, I don't think is wrong. But what it points out to me is that emotion and experiencing God in an emotional level is not wrong. As a matter of fact, I think experiencing God at an emotional level is quite, quite powerful. Over the uh, fall break, we had the wonderful, blessed opportunity to worship at a church in Houston where Jennifer's cousin and her husband and the daughters on that side of the family led worship that morning. And I it was kind of the first time since the pandemic hit 
where I've been able to worship, where I haven't actually been um, in charge of worship. Uh, how do I say this? Most of the times when I'm worship, I I enjoy worship. I love worship. But I don't get to just not worry about the fact that I'm preaching in 10 minutes, right? I mean, that doesn't... And because of the pandemic and just the strange way that this whole... Well, probably for the last three years, finishing the building, I, I really haven't had an opportunity to just worship um, and not worry about the fact that I'll be on stage in 10 minutes or, you know, preaching in 10 minutes. And so this was, I was just overcome with emotion of how beautiful the worship service was and how beautiful the music was and how much I enjoyed it. Um, so... Uh, and this happens periodically in time where where we go to, and it does, I mean, it can be any, really, it's, I'm not talking about the style at all. I'm just talking about encountering God in worship and uh, having God fill you with all of his presence and all of his joy and all of the things that God has. And um, obviously, we are emotional creatures. God created us with three parts to our being, our mind, right, our bodies, and our emotions. And this comes back from Genesis. You will love, well, actually, Deuteronomy 6, right? You shall love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you go back and look at those words and what they meant in the original Hebrew at that time, it's basically three centers of how we associate with the world. We have an intellectual center, we have a physical center, and we have an emotional center. And all of those three centers need to love God. All three of them need to. We need to love God with our bodies. We need to love God with our minds. We need to love God with our emotions. Um, and so when we encounter God on Sunday morning, I do not believe that it is necessarily wrong to encounter God with our minds Right, And we do things on Sunday morning that, that attaches to our mind, that makes our mind think uh, with our emotions. And this could be a story that's in a sermon that's an emotional story that draws an emotional response. It could be just the joy of the music filling us that could fill us with emotion. It could be, I mean, anything of, uh, that we do on Sunday morning could also attract us or, or connect to us at an emotional level. And then physical level. Uh, I mean, the biggest physical level is obviously Holy Communion, right? I mean, that is the presence of God touching us at a physical level. And I think also you could say that, um, you know, dancing around or doing emotion, you know, doing actions to songs or just kind of swaying to music. I mean, all of that sort of thing is also a physical connection. And I don't think that any of those are wrong. I think saying that you cannot connect with God except on an intellectual mo uh, level on a Sunday morning is actually sinful. Um, and that comes out of Stoicism, and it also comes out of this intellectualism where people who are in charge of worship on Sunday say, the reason why we are gathered here is an intellectual exercise, and I'm the intellectual expert, and so I'm going to intellectually inform you about what's happening on Sunday morning. And that is simply not the case. There are three parts to our whole body. 
God says to love him with all three parts of the body. And that could include, at some points, worshiping God with all three parts of the body on Sunday morning. Body, mind, emotions. So uh, I don't think it's necessarily surprising then that when the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church, which is an act of worship, right, that that we have all three playing out. We have this emotional thing where people are are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you can tell it's an emotional thing. They're they're acting as if they're drunk. That people who act like that are not necessarily stoic people, and they're they're dancing around as if tongues of fire. That's the body. And then Peter looks at this and he says, "This is a great teacher mo- teaching moment." So he gets up and he. Tell, shares some information, which is all in an intellectual, mo, um, intellectual, uh, you know, connecting intellectually. And so all three of these exist at Pentecost, body, soul, or body, spirit, and mind, um, body, emotions, and mind. All three of these are connected at Pentecost. Uh, but, but, what does Peter share intellectually? Well, he talks about Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Joel. We looked at that at the last episode. And then Peter shares with the crowd, we're not exactly sure how many people are in the crowd, but we do know later on in this Acts 2 that about 3,000 adults, males, 3,000 adult males are baptized. Not not the females, not the not the children, just the three thousand adult males, and so that tells us a couple things, and we'll get into that when we get into it. But one of the things that it tells us is that there's a rather large crowd that is gathered. So where they were in the upper room, maybe with 120 people, that's what we learned earlier in uh, in Acts, is that there's 120 people. Now they must have moved either outside, maybe in the courtyard. Maybe the room was close to a courtyard. I'm not entirely sure, but I don't know how you can have Peter talking unless they're outside or they're inside, but people are able to stand at the windows and the doors and listen to Peter that's talking outside. Although they're in the upper room, they were in the upper room. So they must have at this point moved outside. And then Peter shares with them in a very non-judgmental way, that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy from Joel, but these people who are there are actually complicit in killing Jesus. Because when Jesus came to this earth, uh, the earth didn't like him. The earth had to kill him. The, the, the nature of this sinful world had to put Jesus to death. And Peter talks to this crowd and says, you are the ones that put him to death. And I just want to start reading again in verse 22, this, um, what Peter is telling them. So we'll start at Acts 2, verse 22, and we'll just, we'll just read this again. So Peter says, uh, verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So obviously, Peter is playing upon the fact that this crowd must have known that Jesus did all these miracles because when Jesus came to this earth, 
He did miracles, and he did a lot of them. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead, at least Lazarus from the dead. And all the information from this propagated with Jesus, and the stories were corroborated by other people that says, yes, this is what I've heard. It's the truth. Now, today, what we would want for proof is an iPhone picture, (laughs) If you see, like I'm walking in the morning and I see a snake, I'll take a picture of it and I'll send it back to my wife and say, see, I saw a snake. Now, I could tell her I saw a snake and she would believe me, but if I show her a picture of the snake, that's a little bit more proof uh, if I see a bobcat or if I see a mountain lion. Although I have seen mountain lions. I've not been quick enough to get a picture of the mountain lion. But all of these things exist. It helps to have pictures. And so... Peter is plying upon the fact that these people have seen the miracles because he says, you know this. You yourselves know this. None of this is disputed information. Jesus came. He uh, he did miracles, signs, and wonders. And I believe, as I've told you, that he is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy from Joel. Remember, he's talking to Israelites. Uh, and then what does he continue saying? Um, So let's go back to verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So I often wonder about this, a couple things. One is that Peter would have seen the agonizing death that Jesus had. And it was truly an agonizing death. And at the point of death, Peter would have said, this is horrible. This is the worst thing that has happened in my life. But that had to happen so that Peter could see the best thing that happened in his life. And the best thing that happened in his life is when Jesus was raised from the dead, came up to him and said, "Uh, look, Peter, I'm back on this earth. These are, that was probably the best thing that ever happened in Peter's life. I know he was married. I know he had children. You know, I know he raised, um, you know, he the blind man later in Acts will see that he and John uh, have a lame man that they restore to health. That must have been really cool. He walked on water. That must have been really cool. But I think watching Jesus be raised from the dead was also pretty cool. And it just goes to show that sometimes the greatest things that happen in our life are precipitated by some of the worst things that happen in our life. Don't forget that. We often think that the horrible, evil things that press in upon us, the worst things that happen in our life are permanent, but they're not. They're actually a precursor to the best things that'll happen in our life, including death. A lot of people fear death and say, this is the worst thing that will ever happen to me. But death is just actually the last thing that you will experience on this earth before the very, very best thing happens to you, which is being with Jesus forever in his presence forever, enjoying the fruit of his kingdom forever and having run the race, and won the race, and now living with Jesus forever, and taking all the stuff that you did on this earth, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, all of that stuff incorporated into you 
and then being able to reflect upon that for the rest of your life. Um, and some of that stuff just will be uh, amazing, uh, just absolutely amazing. And we, I, I firmly believe that part of heaven is just going around and meeting people in heaven that were impacted because of the things you did on this earth. And and I'm not even talking about the people you had conversations with. I'm talking about people that may be 100 or 200 years from now that may say, you did this 200 years ago, and because of that, um, I have uh, eternal life with Jesus. So I'd like to thank you on that. So all of that is um, is the best thing that you will experience in heaven is just seeing all those connections. And God will reveal those at the appropriate time. I find it interesting that Peter does not necessarily yell at these people. He doesn't even seem to get angry at them because Peter has been through the best and the worst that anybody will ever go through. One is seeing your best friend die horrible, miserable death on the cross. And the, and the second thing is seeing him raised from the dead and seeing life in a whole new fashion. When you've gone through that, when you've seen that, it kind of changes the way that you interact with the world around you, right? Once you've been through some struggles and God's gotten you through those struggles, it really does change the way that you view the petty things that happen in this life. And the way I read this, Peter's almost saying, yeah, you know, you handed him over. There were some evil people there. And you were complicit in this, but Jesus died and he rose again. And yeah, you had a part in that, but it was a petty bit part. You may think that it was this big overarching thing that you did to yell, don't give us Barabbas, give us, or don't give us Jesus, uh, give us Barabbas, release Barabbas, don't release Jesus, uh, crucify Jesus. You may think that that was that you are extremely complicit in his death. But I'm here to tell you, one, it was God's plan. He knew it was going to happen. And you were a bit player because there were other evil people that were there that played a bigger part than you. This is much bigger than you. This was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that wanted to put Jesus to death and maybe even the um, the leadership of the Roman Empire. But it's even bigger than that. This is actually... This is actually the battle between good and evil that was set up at the foundation of the earth, and Jesus won the battle. Jesus, as we say, uh, descended into hell and uh, rose again. Why did Jesus descend into hell? That was to fight Satan and win. That's at least what we believe by the creeds. And so we believe that Jesus' death was a cosmic event a cosmic event, the cosmic event. And everything that we do on this earth is subsidiary to that cosmic event. All the bad things we do, all the shame that we encounter, all the fear that we have in this world, all of that is just minuscule and almost not even worth mentioning to the cosmic event, which was Jesus conquering Satan. You may have put him on the death, on the cross, but God raised him, freeing him from the agony of death, right? Because he was agonized, but death released him from that agony. But it was impossible for death to take hold of him and to keep him. My friends, the same is true for us. Whatever agony we experience on this earth, someday it will be over. 
this this life that God gives us that is still wrapped in sin will be over. But the battle has been won and the agony will end. And from that point on, from the moment we draw our last breath, we will no longer experience agony. All we will experience is eternal joy, peace, comfort, pain-free stuff with God <laughs> forever. And that is worth that is worth d- dying for. I mean, it, it's right. That's a horrible thing say to say, right? But that is worth dying for. There are people who believe that uh, this generation, the ones that are being raised now, may may live forever. They won't live forever. First of all, they may live for a very, very long time. We might be able to figure out how to extend life. But even if we extend life, um, you only get like one set of offspring. Some people get two sets. I understand that. Maybe some three. But you only get one set of offspring that you get to raise, which is the greatest joy in your life. Um so you get so you're born, you know, you you grow up as a kid in innocence and then you get an adult and you have kids and then you raise them and then they're gone. And truly that's about that's about all that you really need to experience in life. I, I mean, you could I guess you could have another set of kids and experience it again and be wiser, but it won't be the same. It'll be different because you'll understand that um well, you just understand that that's part of life, right? But even if we live to be a thousand years like Medusa, right? Um, eventually, this earth that we know it is going to collapse in upon itself or it will disintegrate into nothingness. Nothing on this earth will last forever. It can't. The energy of the universe will die out and it'll, um, it'll turn to uh, the heat that's being dispersed into the universe will dissipate and the space will dissipate and everything will be gone. And nothing that we know on this earth will ever last beyond the universe. Nothing will. And so all of us basically are, even if we can extend life for a very long time, we're not going to be able to extend life forever. And the only way that life does get extended forever is Jesus. And because we are in his kingdom, the moment we die, we wake up and we are with him forever because death did not keep its hold on Jesus, and death will not keep its hold on us. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. So let's close in prayer. Uh, gracious God, thank you for this life that you've given us. But we also thank you, Lord, for the life that is to come. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name.